Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. It's wonderful to have you with me uh, today, and I really feel honored that we're able to have this uh, conversation. Plus, I think we've been trying to connect for a little bit uh, uh, now, so it's uh, wonderful for you to be with me today, or it's whatever, something like that, or it's my honor to be with you, or one of those things. Dear Jim, uh, for having me here, it's such a pleasure. You know, you have, uh, in some ways, an extraordinary background in the sense that uh, you came from Mexico and uh, very much identified uh, with the indigenous peoples. And while perhaps that's not extraordinary in and of itself, the fact that you are now at Berkeley and have accomplished so much with the UN and have become a um, activist in regard to the rights of indigenous peoples, also um, a climate activist as well, and someone who is also very much interested in uh, the mystical as well as um, contemplative practices. So. Uh, uh, I know I'm sure that that was not an easy path, but I'm certainly uh, appreciative of the fact that you're able to share your wisdom with us. It's it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. As, and uh, as, as any, uh, I mean, once we start digging a little bit in, in the humane being of any human life, probably we would start seeing a lot of complexities indeed, you know, being human, being alive, being a related and relational being is extremely complex. So, yes. <laughs> well, it is. And, and unfortunately, I, I think um, I'm sure you appreciate the fact that as we evolved in nature, uh, really, that's where we, uh, I think, uh, our, our best selves oftentimes. And I think the nature of European colonialism and Western capitalism have really separated us uh, from that. And I think uh, as a result, many people suffer as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, in the very beginning of our conversation, I was thanking you for uh, your invitation uh, in my indigenous language, uh, my Atilta language. And um, that speaks a lot uh, of what you mentioned on, on colonial uh, extraction and um, cultural genocides, uh, plus, of course, yeah, the, the, the full the full genocides of uh, indigenous peoples. And, and I always uh, start with speaking my language because it is a way of honoring the lands from where I'm come from. I was born and raised in the highlands of Chiapas in, in Mexico within the uh, Maya Tzeltal, uh, Maya Mocho, and Maya Cachiquelan Mam on my dad's side. And uh, now at Las Caltecon, uh, my mother's side. Uh, so it's it's a way of 
making very clear that uh, indigenous peoples are very present. Uh, we are not uh, an idea of the past, which unfortunately it's still um, mistaken in, in people's imaginaries. And, uh, and also because it brings awareness, one, of the colonization of, of uh, all these peoples around the world. I, I, I now speak in English with you, so not in my language, so I, I have to learn how to be in, in this colonial world. But it also speaks about the uh, really concerning loss of cultures that is going at the pair of the biodiversity loss that, that we are experiencing in the world. Because we lose one indigenous language every two weeks. Imagine how, how terrible this is. Uh, and 4,000 of the 7,000 languages spoken in the world are indigenous. So imagine how um, concerning it is, the, the, the cultural loss. And then, as you mentioned, my work on, on the climate emergency, and so I bring also the the to people's awareness the the urgent um, care that we need to, to give to the cultural uh, extinction too. And also these biocultural loss that we are experiencing. So both of those. No, it's uh, 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 it's on some level it's and it's interesting because. Uh, most uh, European colonial white individuals uh, prefer not to have to face the reality of the horrible pain and suffering caused by our forefathers and uh, uh, to see the amount of um, lack of any compassion, any sense of the importance of indigenous cultures. And and what's especially sad about that is that people, I think, who are indigenous, who've lived in their environment for literally thousands of years, have immense knowledge of how uh, to survive in that area, the knowledge of plants, how uh, these environments are actually healing. And then to not only uh, have uh, cultural genocide, but all this immense knowledge is lost about how the ways of indigenous peoples can be of benefit to mankind. Absolutely, and and you you mentioned the the resistance in uh, from from more privileged, weird groups, you know, as as uh, the Western educated, industrial and uh, rich and of democratic origin that. Uh, uh, Heinrich have been developing, you know, this this or uh, coined this term, um, but the complacency in 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 these groups of uh, avoiding reckoning with this very painful past, and so there comes this this side of of the work that I do that there's so much of my my interest and and my passion in the contemplative sciences, you know. Uh, the contemplative sciences of indigenous communities, non of indigenous traditions, uh, as as a way to really examine very deeply how we create our identities, our 
collective identities and then our personal identities and then see what parts of these stories have been imposed upon us from systems of oppression, colonialism, and race, class, you know, ethnicity that that keep becoming barriers to our better relationship with ourselves, with, with others, uh, but with others, not only other human beings, but uh, the whole living beings that inhabit our planet. Um, I started also by acknowledging uh, the lands from where I come and and honor, honoring also, and right now I live in, in Huichun Ohlone uh, lands, in also called Berkeley. Um, and that importance of really knowing how much we owe to our relationship to the lands that have nourished us for millennia and you know, that have really helped um, humans find a home, but that with the colonization processes started creating uh, this separation, right? These, these absurd ideas of supremacy of certain groups upon others. And not only that, but uh, also mythological or faith-based beliefs that think that our whole lands and planet were resources to be owned or or utilized or exploited, you know, exploited extracted from, right? Uh, that then is, is being repeated in the ways that we relate to others. So all of those uh, impairments, let's say, of, of our full awareness of, of our relational being that we are, uh, can start to be dismantled, you know, like disentangled with contemplative practices. Uh, we know that there are, there is this very strong um, mindfulness movement, as, as you very well know, that thanks to that movement, there has been a very important interest in compassion studies, you knowing in um, concentration studies and well-being. But within that, uh, that field, as you know, it was also becoming very Western or you know, very weird, you know, and, and the, the traditions of origin uh, weren't uh, being translated from that part of compassionate uh, relationship, nor were the more social um, transformation possibilities. And of course, there was none about, uh, none coming from indigenous traditions of the world. So that's when I started uh, really pushing and, and um, bringing awareness of of this, the wisdoms of, of indigenous peoples of the world. Around 5,000 communities living in more than 90 countries know that, that have a very sophisticated way of relating to the land, you know, to relating to all other living beings. Um, to creating these cosmologies or worldviews, uh, cosmovisions of uh, of care, you know, of, of responsibility, and and sometimes when we talk about ownership and um, uh, possession or extraction, we forget that we are relating to other responsive beings, right? So anyhow, I'm I'm. Uh, um, 
I'm expanding and then returning to to your comments no, on on uh, colonialism and uh, complacency. Well, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I think one of the challenges, of course, is that one. Um, there's such uh, power uh, to the Western colonial European uh, narrative, um, and it's very powerful. And it is not to the point where it actually honors uh, all the indigenous peoples. Certainly, uh, it has made fa amazing strides whether you look at uh, um, the American Indian or the uh, Aboriginal people of Australia or obviously those in Mexico and Central and South America. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it's just the beginning. And the question is, will the recognition of the necessity to honor not only uh, the indigenous peoples, but... Uh, the land, the forests, the rivers, the streams, the ocean, uh, before uh, we self-destruct. Yeah. Um, and indeed, as you mentioned, it is very, very, very recent that the acknowledgement, they say, or like the recognition of, of indigenous peoples really become part of international frameworks. Only in 2007, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was finally, you know, signed. Uh, although it's a declaration, so unfortunately, these are aspirational rights, but not not yet a convention that has legally binding um, responsibilities to to all uh, um, countries, but rather that gives countries an idea of the importance of uh, recognizing indigenous peoples. But as you know, the, the American Indian movement was really strong uh, in the uh, last 22 decades of the 20th century and was really pushing for this recognition and acknowledgement of, our, of the peoples. Um, but even uh, as you mentioned now, uh, the United States, Australia, maybe Latin America, most times in people's imaginations, those are the areas where indigenous peoples are. Uh, but then, of course, there are first peoples in, in the whole of Canada and the Northern Territories. Um, and and actually, there are tons of indigenous uh, nations or or um, peoples in, in the whole of Asia, right? And, Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, as well, we see that that these uh, identities continue to this day to have uh, obstacles to be recognized. Like China has a lot of troubles only until last year acknowledged that there were ethnic minorities, you know, because there is this important move towards one single identity. The same with India. You know, there are also uh, different, dif so many um requirements to be federally recognized and the same in the us we see that you know? so i think um there are very very few countries like uh, one great example is bolivia that has taken the the identity of plurinational nation or nation of nations guatemala is aiming for that 
as well. Peru, in a way, Mexico has legally recognized it, but it's not yet part of a constitutional uh, change. So anyhow, there's this um, uh, political identity that has united the great diversity of indigenous peoples to, but aiming to be recognized. No? So uh, without falling into the mistaken idea that indigenous peoples are just one or that just one single view, because it's there's very uh, little as diverse you know, groups as indigenous peoples of the world, you know? uh, but but the the unification into a political identity you know, to push this recognition and to push the the uh, becoming participants of the decision making processes that affect their lives, which to this day, um, unfortunately, uh, even within the importance of the the conservation movements, these are still taken by uh, weird groups and in in detriment of the well-being of indigenous peoples, you know, because many times uh, the idea of the Agenda 2030 or the 30 by 30, you know, that 30% of uh, uh, areas will be protected by 2030. Most of these areas are within indigenous territories of the world, which these lands would be taken, it was like the, the the biggest land grabs perhaps in history, and then indigenous peoples would be displaced from those territories. It has happened already many occasions in in um, the African continent, in um, in Latin America, and of course in, in all, all other areas. You know? So while it is, there is a push for uh, becoming much more raising voices, let's say, you know, for the climate emergency, there is also this other challenge on how to do it in a way that is truly respectful and that builds right relationships and returns authority to these peoples. You know? And, and it's, uh, it's them who decide upon their own lands, you know, to how to manage their own resources. You know? That's still an incredible um, and very, very hard uh, problem to this day. No, I, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, the, the, I, I sometimes find it annoying that you'll see politicians who will make the statements, we wish to honor the land, et cetera, et cetera, but they do nothing. So at every event, they say this, but there's absolutely no action behind it. And it reminds me of uh, corporate social responsibility, which was all a PR campaign with nothing underneath it. And I think that it's our job to force uh, that actually to become a reality and not simply uh, publicity opportunities. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm so glad that you bring uh, this uh, land acknowledgement issue because um, while it is a step you know, to that recognition, uh, it falls so short. Um, it can so much can be done from it, no, uh, and also at the part with the land back movement, no, like returning uh, the authority and returning the ownership to the peoples that have stored these lands. Um, many times, either the land is only mentioned but only by name, there's no action, 
or a member of the community is invited to give this acknowledgement, but then there's no other participatory decision-making that is given to the peoples. Many times the free prior and informed consent, which is one of the most important indigenous rights, to decide when and what kind of uh, projects would be taking uh, place in, in indigenous lands is completely passed by, you know, it's not, uh, it's not acknowledged. When we push, we encourage institutions to start having actions towards them, you know, like from, uh, you know, nowadays it's, it's hopeful to see education institutions, many universities, uh, giving free, um, free college, you know, to, to indigenous, um, students, which is, is, is great, but we forget also that for indigenous students to get to college, there is a huge, uh, gap because indigenous are, have the highest dropout from high school because of the, uh, lack of to access to medicine, lack of access to education, of course, no possibilities of, of having a life that that can really truly flourish, you know, and in conditions that are um, of abundance. You know, there, there's lack of that. No, I, uh, I, I think that's correct. You know, first of all, uh, and on some level, I speak from my own background of poverty. I mean, I obviously I'm a white male, which uh, is already an incredible gift in terms of moving ahead. But that being said, you know, to somehow expect that an indigenous individual who is connected to their culture, right from the start, you're prejudiced against as soon as you show up uh, because of that reality. And the institutions somehow think that by allowing you to attend, that's all they have to do when in fact they have to give you an immense amount of support, not only financial resources, but support in terms of integrating yourself into this new environment and uh, actually uh, a f with a feeling that you actually belong there and you're welcome. And the disparity between those two is significant. And, and this is why so many people who are uh, uh, either poor or indigenous or both, uh, it's very, very hard. And it's very sad because there's so many incredibly brilliant people who are destroyed before they even start because of the structural barriers to integrating into uh, Western um, society. Absolutely. And and most times as well, we need to leave our cultural containers, you know, in order to have access to this education. Um, I had to leave my cultural um, uh, community in order to pursue education. And I, and I as well, I, I hear you, you know, that uh, it's almost miraculous. And many times I, I, I think about that and, and speak at times with with friends and family i'm the first to live abroad and the first uh in the family to earn an advanced degree the first woman which of course that that's immensely um powerful that for the community you know, now i i hear um nieces and and girls in, in the community saying that they want to study that they want to um um 
follow my steps. Uh, but of course, as, as you said, it, it was really unusual that I came to this uh, point, and it is. No, I, and they, I, I, I have a long list of of struggles and horror stories. That that, if I think about it, is how, what sort of, uh, was said earlier, not magic, you know, or or, or allowed that that there was a possibility for me to continue you know? and then of course the moment that i realized um that i have this responsibility to also bring back this empowerment you know this this uh this transmission of culture you know and bringing to to the community health bringing education um just to give a, a very painful uh, statistics, um, 73% of the advanced degree in, in the U.S. go to white uh, people. After that, it's 12% to Asian Americans and then 8% both to uh, people of African descent and people uh, uh, Latinx. And only 0.3% go to indigenous. So we can see how difficult it is in many in in countries in the world indigenous peoples have as much as 20 years less of like life expectancy like in nepal in the us indigenous peoples have 6 or 7 years less of life expectancy as you are saying the support is not only a free education that's a step but how are you going to how are we going to ensure that these children have support from childhood to be able to stay in their community, revitalize their languages, revitalize their culture, and then use that culture to then continue contributing to the well-being, not only of their own communities, but of the world. You know? So there's so much more uh, deep reckoning, as we said, you no, know, and of, of what is why is it that uh, we continue to perpetuate these systems of, of oppression and extraction, and then how can we commit to transform that? You no, know, what kind of um, as as well, we mentioned compassion many times, but it, from indigenous perspective, compassion is not only for the suffering of other human beings, you no, know, but compassion is for the suffering of our bodies of water, you know, of our forests, you know, of our Skies. How can we return this uh, to these ways of living in which we honor the the responsive awareness that the consciousness of life that lives in all of the of the planet? No, uh, I think that's exactly right. It's interesting because we were talking about you know making it uh, in uh, sort of. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, people will say to me, well, Jim, see, you you made it, therefore it mustn't be that hard or it's readily available. But, you know, I always tell people, you know, I'm a one in a million who, for whatever reason, was able to overcome hardship. It, it is, I should never be used as an example. What we need to look at is the literally hundreds of thousands or millions who, even if they're intelligent, even if they uh, have the capability, are shut out of the system. And, uh, and the reality is, and there are innumerable examples that when people are given the opportunity 
from these types of backgrounds, they can do it. Uh, it's not because there's anything inherently wrong. It's except for the structural limitations that have been created, uh, unfortunately, as a result of the extractive nature of capitalism. Absolutely. And even the idea, no, that, that there could be something different in, in the abilities that he, humans may have, no, it's already coming from a from a uh, from a a way of, of perceiving the world in which there are these differences, no, in possibilities. And as you said, it's not it's not oh how how amazing that you how did you get there no but we we should not be surprised that one gets to a point but rather why are there not many more why is it that not everyone has the possibility of of fulfillment of like following paths so without having to leave their communities or or leave their own possibilities of, of life so the, I think our our deeper reflections and examinations should be into the systems, the stories that keep perpetuating these. Uh, yeah, these uh, this reality. I mean, realities. Yeah. No? Well, yeah. you know, I've always been amused by uh, Davos, and I think it's a horrible, horrible example where you have essentially the power brokers of the world meet and they decide how uh, the rest of the world should function. And there's an interesting quote by Tolstoy, and I may get a little bit of this, uh, the quote incorrect, but it's basically, there is a man on your back choking you. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but he never offers to get off your back and stop choking you. And to believe that somehow the most rich and entitled individuals will somehow come to a conclusion that uh, the rest of the world uh, deserves the privilege of reaching their human potential uh, versus that they somehow have the right to continue this extractive process that, as an example, I think they estimated uh, during the COVID period, something like $1.7 trillion was made, which went into the pockets of 1% of the people. And this is a travesty. It, it's an abomination. And unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid that as this continues, two things will happen. One, uh, uh, the planet will be destroyed because of the greed of this small subset of people, and two, that uh, uh, we will see ever-worsening conditions uh, for all peoples, but especially those who are least able to fight, and those are the poor, uh, those are the oppressed, those are the indigenous peoples. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, we know that 85% of the resources of the whole world go to privileged developed countries. You know, and that continues to this day. And, uh, and that it is those countries who somehow feel entitled to decide upon how other countries should uh, manage their resources or uh, that how 
the development of all other regions of the world should be dictated by these uh, few countries. No, it's it's then again no, it's just another uh, iteration of the uh, ontology of of domination of an ontology of uh, extraction of ownership that unfortunately has been. Uh, established in in the west uh, and not only in in the european countries no? like the whole western uh belief systems no like the no? but yeah well so it, this is a um uh we see how urgent changes need to to happen we know uh from recent uh 2019 fao um studies that lands that are managed by indigenous peoples have much, much less carbon footprint than areas uh, that are not managed. So the idea of returning the lands to the original stewards may be one way to find solutions for the emergencies that we are living right now. And then also returning to that sense of understanding of the world, know that ontology, that way of being in the world that is relational, that it is acknowledging our responsibility for the well-being of others, that acknowledges that all other living beings are sensitive and responsible and responsive to our presence, that are impacted by our presence, just as much as we are by their presence. You know? and, and, and how can then we start truly building uh, possibilities for flourishing on the planet and not just the idea of human flourishing as as you know this human flourishing should be fad planet in a flourishing way. planet flourishing yeah yes. it's like moving towards planet and flourishing yeah absolutely well you know I, I don't mean to sound too pessimistic i think what we are seeing though are especially among the gen z and the millennials a demand uh, of a different narrative for the future. And I think that is encouraging, and hopefully that will become uh, a much, much stronger voice over the next several years uh, to counteract um, some of the things that unfortunately have been going on for hundreds of years. Let me ask you another question, or maybe shift gears sli slightly. And just let me no, respond sure. really quickly about about the uh, the youth you know, the, the great power of the youth to to demand, you know, and to orient uh, what the, their important uh, imperatives are, you know, because they are the ones who are going to be making the decisions. And we see also that they are relating to each other in more different ways. You no, know, they are creating possibilities for diversity in their own understandings of the world, which hopefully will continue to to um, flourish. And another important thing is yes, youth, but also yes to elders. You know, from indigenous perspective, we need both. We need that intergeneration, intergenerational transmission of wisdom, you knowing which the the strength and the new ideas and the novelties are also coming from the experience and the understanding and the, the very keen observation that elders have. You know? So we have to have uh, create spaces for, for involvement for all these different um, people in, in our society. No, I think, uh, and I should have mentioned that, you're absolutely correct. I, I mean, the knowledge of elders 
is so critical uh, to the transmission of, of visions of hope, even of possibilities of, and also sharing their own struggles and challenges. And unfortunately, in the United States, especially, uh, instead of having the, uh, um, if you will, the nuclear family where you respect your elders, we ship them off. And, uh, and we miss so much uh, from that uh, happening. What I... And we miss the, the, the families that are really sharing responsibilities in the home, you know, that the, the alloparenting, for example, you know, taking care of kids that in many other collective communities, grandparents, aunties, uncles, they are all involved in raising a child. The whole village is raising a child. You know? So there's a different way of relating then also to, to the responsibility of your own community, you know, and, and you're not feeling that unfortunate reality that most uh, youth and, and, and youngsters are feeling now, feeling alienated, lonely, not belonging uh, from communities. No, so that that's another part. No, I, I think that's correct. It's interesting. I was reading an article about Denmark where they were actually building uh, uh, villages where actually the elderly care facilities would be connected to young families. Yeah. And you know, you go all over the world where indigenous peoples are, you'll find that already. Yes. We can give a lot of good tips to the <laughs> No, no, uh, I, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, I'm fortunate in that uh, my wife's parents actually live with us, and it has been uh, an incredible blessing to uh, my children. Uh, and actually, they live in a a a, uh, a separate uh, building on the property, but the extraordinary thing is every night they go over and say goodnight <laughs> to their grandparents, mm. <laughs> and and I have to say that uh, their relationship. Uh, I'm even now every day like they you get together, they do things, and it just is very very moving uh, to have that. Uh, I did not have that, and just to see that is so, so powerful, and and we should never forget that because, you know, the presence of children also uh, actually keeps elderly people younger uh, by engaging them, using their minds, using their talents, instead of a perception that once you reach a certain age, you have nothing to offer people, and it's just so uh, unfortunate. Yeah, like they, it gives them purpose, right? Which is a very important, um, crucial, you know, part of of the of the community, you know, to really transmit the the experience, the the as I mentioned, looking observation, and I I I think of also my own relationship with my grandparents and some of my most formative and meaningful memories are from conversations that I had with them. You know, I, and, and just to bring one, um, I remember as, as a young woman uh, speaking with my uh, grandpa, um, how frustrated I was that, that the world was in real chaos and, and that humans were so blind. And, and he asked me, are you doing what you're uh, supposed to do? Are you giving the best that you can? I try, Grandpa. I am really trying, but I feel that I can't move more as, as I would like. 
Well, are you sharing your food? Are you sharing your resources? I do, Grandpa. That's part of what the commitment that I have. Like, okay, I also do that. So right now we are two, but I know there are many more out there. Now you have to go there and find them. And you know, you just said you felt a little pessimistic. And just to give a little bit of other other way, I feel more optimist because I there are many more and we are finding each other. Like your podcast reaches the people that are looking for that, look, reach for those seekers. And there are many more people that are aiming to transform these ways, these stories. So even though he lived in a very small place where he, our family had to move every generation to a little bigger community, a little bigger, bigger village in order to uh, give uh, possibilities to, to the families. Now I am over here reaching as well, you know, trying to bring this wisdom into, into the people. And we are connecting, we are finding each other. So there may be, as I say, I don't really like the word hope because that somehow feels that we are dependent of some sort of magic happening. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, some sort of happening that is going to come and fix everything. But I, I like the word commitment, knowing that I commit that I independently of the outcome, I will do what is right to serve others. No, I think that's, uh, I would like to believe I have that same uh, commitment. Uh, and I do believe that we are having an impact. As an example, I, uh, one of the programs we do at Stanford is called Applied Compassion Training. And uh, um, it's an 11-month-long program, but we have representatives from between 40 to 60 countries and we mentor them on developing a capstone project, which they then take back to their organization. And, uh, uh, and we've had an impact on over a million people, even though the program's been only around for a couple of years. So uh, I think, uh, again, each of us in our own way, and see a lot of people will sit there and say, well, I don't have the resources or et cetera, et cetera, I, I'm not able. But I do believe everyone has the opportunity in their own way to have a, a positive impact. But I think it comes back to changing your perspective. It has to be a change from self to be of service to others. And when you're able to change your perspective, um, that changes everything. And what I think a lot of people are beginning to realize is that when you're able to change your perspective, that actually helps you in so many ways. It helps your mental state. It helps your uh, physiologic state. And, and it gives you uh, an immense amount of confidence uh, to see the possibilities that are there. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, very similarly, the, the research that I am uh, doing right now in Berkeley my aim, my, my commitment is um, uh, with working with different uh, indigenous nations of the Americas to start with, but now we are opening uh, to 
uh, other communities as well in Asia. Um, and and I hope to convince a lot of people so that I can make this my life and, and, and uh, bring this. So how can we benefit our indigenous communities by giving rise, acknowledging the authority of their wisdoms, and then with the direct involvement of elders and youth of these communities to create ways that we can also help other other indigenous and non-indigenous communities of the world to benefit, you know, to create this way of compassion for the planet, compassion for Mother Earth. You know? So hopefully, and James, I hope one day I could also say that I'm reaching millions and that I'm convincing people into changing uh, their identities to become identities of connection, of responsibility, of reverence uh, for our Mother Earth. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we did a program, actually, Seacare, with the University of Edinburgh, and it was called Realizing a Compassionate Planet. And uh, this was last, uh, I think it was November, but it was uh, very, very powerful because we brought many peoples together and had uh, uh, multiple discussions about uh, how we need to come together and move the needle. And, of course, uh, I think that... One of the challenges is to get the message out because I think so many people want to do something positive, but there's not a easy method oftentimes to do that. You know, one of the things that I've been advocating is to have a, a World Compassion Festival. And what this would uh, comprise is spiritual, religious individuals, indigenous peoples, uh, celebrities, musicians, and um, to basically promote this message of oneness and uh, to act as uh, a voice for the world to talk about coming together to uh, preserve our planet and all the inhabitants uh, of the planet. But underneath this, actually, to create a, um, a web presence uh, in which we allow any organization, any charity, any nonprofit, uh, any NGO to post and then be able to engage in conversations uh, and to volunteer and to donate. And it's all integrated and curated, which allows, because one of the things is if you, it's hard sometimes to find something in your area uh, that resonates with you. And if you're able to curate this where all of these opportunities are there, I think uh, potentially that could be very, very powerful. I I, um, I have a few things to respond on that. Uh, first of all, well, congratulations on having these efforts, and I think they would be very impactful. Uh, and also to, to examine or to think a little, uh, reflect on how the idea of having like a one one size fits all formula is is not really uh, uh, a good solution, right? Because we live in very different uh, conditions, very different um, um, possibilities of life. So we need to see to that context and that diversity, and also the idea of the oneness may also 
move away from the very important part of reckoning, you know, of like, we may be having possibilities, you know, we could have the same capacities, but there is really not that possibility for most of the world. No, there is not this one single uh way of seeing things. Actually, there's this huge diversity, but we can look into the the possibility of of how are we going to make the changes so that everybody can have access to flourish. No, no, I, I totally no. agree with you. And certainly I wasn't implying that somehow oneness implies not being respectful of the diversity uh, of not only peoples, but cultures and uh, regions in this world, uh, of course, you know, uh, oneness responds to the connection between all humanity, uh, but it's not meant in any way to denigrate uh, particular peoples. Plus, actually, every city uh, would have the possibility of having their own, if you will, compassion festival uh, that recognizes those individuals in the community and uh, that particular community in terms of promoting uh, a compassionate uh, perspective. But I certainly appreciate your comments. Uh, you know, the challenge is you have to get the world's attention. And by bringing together all these uh, divergent groups has the ability to get the world's attention. And I think that's the most important thing. It's not to uh, pasteurize or create some cultural purity it's actually to recognize the immense diversity in the world and honor that. Um, so that at least is my vision. Now, uh, again, the reality is that uh, this can be very challenging and one has to be very careful how something like this is done and really think through the different aspects of it. Um, to change gears slightly, uh, we have seen a lot of a cultural appropriate is it appropriate uh, appropriate appropriation yes yes uh, and uh, whether it's within the context of contemplative practice or uh, the use of psychedelics um, and you know you see these people who are calling themselves shamans uh, and uh, there's actually a, a fellow by the name of Ron Purser I don't know if you know him he wrote a book called McMindfulness uh, talking about uh, how uh, uh, these types of things are being commoditized, commercialized, and created for profit, not uh, for the purpose of benefiting others. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the issue of uh, spirit medicines is, as you well know, um, so... In, in everybody's interest at this point. Um, it, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's growing incredibly fast um, that uh, possibly very soon to be accessible to, to the much larger community. Um, many states also um, opening uh, legislation you know, for for either decriminalization of them just having access to the uh, therapies for these spirit medicines 
um, even as you mentioned, no, the the way the West calls the medicines psychedelics, no, following um, a very Western idea of the manifestation of the mind and of the human mind, um, we we see then again, no, another uh, iteration of extraction, capitalization, commodification of uh, traditions that are uh, of indigenous origin uh, for for many, many uh, years, no millennia probably. Uh, but also a, a huge misunderstanding on how to approach these medicines. You know, we have um, we have made a statement uh, about uh, indigenous views on on the, the this field. Um, we uh, I, I put together a group of um, indigenous representatives of, of medicines. Um, Indigenous right defenders, uh, lawyers, etc., uh, to bring awareness, you no, know, to uh, educate uh, and shed light into the big warnings that we observe on this field. And um, uh, it, it's a paper that came out in December. It's the ethical principles of indigenous traditional medicine to guide Western psychedelic um, research and praxis. It's in the Lancet uh, Americas. It has been very impactful as well in the field. Fortunately, after that, there have uh, started to be other conversations with um, institutions. I have been working on this uh, research in this field for many, many years, uh, trying to bring this awareness to um, institutions that are carrying out this research. I I also brought awareness of this to, to the United Nations, no, with the Special Rapporteur of the uh, Indigenous Affairs, and the, uh, the problem of intellectual, tangible and intangible property is part of the conversations of the United Nations Permanent Forum of Indigenous Issues. But those conversations are slow, uh, so I thought that the best chance that we could have to have incidence in how this field is developing was to educate these research institutions. And I realized as I started working with these different centers that it was actually just pure lack of understanding and awareness of how all of these violations were perpetrated uh, with indigenous uh, traditions. And while many have noted that some of the uh, of these uh, medicines are not coming from indigenous traditions, we can also uh, um, argue that had there not been that initial extraction uh, from these indigenous um, wisdoms into the use of these plants, uh, there would have been no real development of other. Uh, medicines that are aiming to have this, this similar um, benefit. Uh, and then there are, of course, there. this is a very tricky uh, conversation because 
we are speaking about clashing ontologists almost, no, in the way that the West medicalizes and, and pathologizes also um, disturbances of the mind or imbalances of the mind. Uh, also how we relate to these medicines and to the lands that grow these medicines. But nowadays, unfortunately, Western uh, organizations are pushing for these same indigenous communities to transform their uh, their uh, way of relating to the to the medicines in order to cater to Western uh, demands. You no, know? uh, we know that many of the of the medicines are now being grown in areas that were not ever uh, related to these traditions. Uh, in just because these are are very coveted areas you know, for for westerns, but then we also know that there has been deforestation. There is much more um, commodification. There are there are areas in which now these medicines are offered as even sort of menus. You know they they have uh, lost their their sacredness of relating to it. Uh, as you as you mentioned, there is a, a, a huge interest in weird groups to uh, become so-called shamans. You know, the, the most of facilitators that are working with these medicines are probably white. There has been a lot of uh, talk as well that in the studies of, of um, institutions that are carrying this research, most of the participants are white. Most of the researchers that are carrying this uh, research are also uh, mostly white. None of the benefits of this multi-billion industry is going back to indigenous traditions. And some organizations, Western organizations that have red washed their identity, you know, have, are actually creating uh, conflict between organizations that receive their funding and organizations that do not, or they are pushing uh, traditions that to adopt other medicines in order to to fulfill the the demands. So it's very complicated. It's uh, there's so much to say about it, um, but fortunately, more and more conversations are coming. I I just last a uh, couple of weeks ago. We had a, a conversation with um, the Department of Human Services. Uh, the NIH is also having these conversations, uh, and then centers, you know, the the centers that are really leading this uh, research, you know, from John Hopkins to Berkeley to Oxford, uh, Harvard, UPenn, etc., that are um, are also starting to question or to inquire how to bring um, these acknowledgments, this restoration of of, uh, of authority for for indigenous traditions. But it's it's a conversation that is going to take a long time and uh, it's going to be messy as, as messy is the field. The uh, another thing I want to talk about uh, is and Jim, unfortunately, oh, I have, have to a, run. A, yeah, but uh, uh, you know, very soon. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's so much to say. Uh, I know. Like, we, I'm sure we could talk forever. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Well, maybe uh, I was going to talk to you about uh, the patriarchal nature of society, uh, but that may take a while. Uh, you had made a comment, and I know you already made a comment about hope, but I think you said something. Um, dreams are the, uh, let's see, how did that quote go? Uh, dreaming is the chrysalis of hope. And uh, yes. um, so maybe in summary, you can tell us what uh, your dreams are telling you. Yeah, I I, um, I love that. Uh, uh, thank you so much for, 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 for bringing that. Um, but yeah, I, I love how, how that came up, the um, uh, uh, writing about dreaming. Um, this jewel of insight came uh, to me, you know, like this, the dreaming is the chrysalis of hope, uh, where time without time is unleashed, where we set ourselves free. And um, of course, playing with this idea of um, we have been imposed upon us all these narratives of um, discrimination, of uh, um, not good enoughness, you know, of, of doubt. Um, and it is within that dream of possibility that we can dismantle any of these narratives, that we can then open, break free of the bondage of identity and realize that all of those building blocks are actually illusions. And so we can dissolve those and then recreate ourselves from those principles that we feel that are the ones that bring us together, that create the possibility of relationality, and that makes us aware of how fragile and how uniquely beautiful life is. And because of that, what reverence it is that we need to live our lives with, you know, to really honor that spirit of life. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much. It's really been a joy uh, to speak with you. And uh, I appreciate you just taking the time uh, with me today. And I think our audience members will really appreciate this and hopefully, again, recognize that however humble you believe your situation is, uh, having a commitment to be of service is actually, I think, the uh, highest level of our humanity. So uh, thank you, and uh, much love to you. Gracias, and thank you very much, dear Yim. We are finding each other. So yeah, we, please come all, all the rest. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> uh, uh, let us do that. We will plan on doing that. <laughs> Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm -hmm.